Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. Several years ago, today's guest, who then lived locally to us, invited me to go to lunch with him, and he was then known primarily as a meditation expert, and if there's anything I'm really bad at, it's meditation, but he would never take that for an answer. He was determined to help me learn. He insisted to me that anybody can learn to meditate, which I'm, I'm sure he's right, I'm because he's a, he's a true expert. I'm sure he's right. Sadly, though... I think I'm the sole exception. My longer history with meditation is that back in the 70s, my husband and I went to California. We spent a week studying transcendental meditation with the Beatles guru, the the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi himself and his team. And it turned out my husband was a natural at meditation. Seriously, he went on to meditate every single day of his life for the next 40 years. But sadly, I was, I couldn't even do it with the Maharishi himself. I flunked out there as well. But I became a good friend, frankly, and I really, I respect our, our wonderful guest today is a truly, truly great guy. And he is a meditation star. <laughs> Kelvin Chen is an author. He's a meditation teacher and a life after life expert. His first book is called Overcoming the Fear of Death through each of the four main belief systems. And it's a bestseller. His second book is called Marcus Aurelius Updated 21st Century Meditations on Living Life. And it's a collection of 67 essays ranging from emotions, life principles, meditation, and the spiritual. And his third book is After the Afterlife. That's the one we're going to talk about today. Memories of my past lives. And it's, it describes his past life memories, bits of memories, really, that reach back 6,000 years and have resurfaced for him over the past 45 years. And what they taught him about himself and about how our minds continue from lifetime to lifetime. I mean, when people have past life memories, they don't go back and they remember, you know, day by day. They just have bits of memories that come up and, and often kind of in amazing ways. Kelvin Chin is executive director and founder of the Turning Within Meditation and Overcoming the Fear of Death Foundations, and he's an internationally recognized meditation teacher. He's been featured in in big places, in Business Insider, Newsweek, and Kaiser Health News. He's taught meditation at West Point and in the U.S. Army, including in the DMZ in Korea. For heaven's sake, Kelvin has been meditating for 52 years, and he has taught meditation to thousands of people in over 60 countries, but he had to subtract one because he tried to teach me, and I didn't, I just couldn't do it. He's a great, he's a great, he's laughing now. He's a graduate of Dartmouth, Yale, and Boston College School of Law. Kelvin, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here after all this time. Yeah, it's great to see you again. It's been a few years. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to talk about this. I, I enjoyed your book. I got to read part of it, but because of my injury, I just can't read a book right now. I have one hand, and it, one hand isn't good enough for reading a book. Mm. But um, what I read about it, well, really, I mean, it was it was fascinating. 
because I know why this would be possible. You have such, one of the things that meditation does is to give people good control of their minds. And since you're so good at meditation, I can really imagine that the way the veil is thinning now, someone who is good at meditating as you're good at meditating would be able to actually access other lives and fragments of lives pretty easily, I would think. But it it started with you kind of spontaneously. Why don't you tell us that story? How did this begin for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, I think meditation has definitely accelerated my, as you say, my opening up. But um, it was really spontaneous. You know, you you know my history, so I'll just tell the the viewers who don't know about it. I I learned to meditate when I was a teenager, and the main reason I did it was because I was stressed out. I was highly anxious. I was at, you know, you were at Smith. I was up at Dartmouth College. It was very high pressure, as you know, and I was really stressed out. That's why I learned. I was not into spiritual stuff. If you'd asked me about spirituality or if you were into, you know, I mean, if you had this podcast back then, I'd go, yeah, yeah, okay, what is she talking about, ghosts? I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what spirituality was, you know? It's like, I thought it was like, uh, well, I kind of went to church for a while and then I stopped going. And yeah. I, you know, that's what I thought it was. So I was just learning meditation purely for stress management reasons. That's it. And it and it helped me. It turned my life around. As you said, I learned TM back then. I studied personally with Maharishi in 1971 and 1973. And uh, and as you know, I, I became an international leader in his organization for about 10 years. And then they went off in a different direction. And I said, I'm going to stay focused on the meditation. And um and I've since removed all the cultural stuff and, and made it easier. But what happened spontaneously, as you say, in the mid-70s for me, is um, the first thing I had was a dream that I just thought was a dream. I didn't think it was anything other than a bad dream. And I'd had bad dreams before, you know, of course, you know, just had nightmares, bad dreams. This one was very emotionally uh, distressing. It wasn't a fear. You know, sometimes we have dreams where, you know, some dog is chasing us or something. It's fear related. This one was not that. This one was emotionally distressing, uh, like sadness. And um, that was it. So I just parked it, you know, and I didn't think much of it. Uh, Because remember, I didn't believe in anything past life related, or I didn't even believe in an afterlife. I was science oriented. I didn't believe in a heaven or whatever, whatever. So um, then I was about six or eight months later, I was on one of these advanced TM meditation retreats in Switzerland. And there's like 75 of us in the hotel and we're doing group meditations and we're doing individual meditations up in our rooms and so forth all day, every day for two months. And uh, during the, I know, uh, uh, and and during the uh, one of the group meditations, I had this energy rush, and everybody was getting it. We were doing additional, in addition to the TM technique that you and your husband originally learned. There, it was we were doing some very easy uh, um, energetic movements. People, your audience would probably think of it as energy movement or Kundalini kind of exercises. And during one of those in the group meditations, I started getting all these energy rushes. And so then uh, after lunch one day, we would go for walks. And I was talking to my friend George, George Hammond. And um, 
And I said, st- I started telling him, I said, uh, you, I had this dream, George, like about six or eight months ago. It was really upsetting. I think that's all I told him. And then he filled in the rest of the dream. And then I said, well, how'd you know that? And he, he told me what I was wearing and had sandals on and a brown tunic and this and that. And I've been crying all night. And I, and I said, how'd you know that? And he goes, because I found you, I found you in the desert on the side of the road. <laughs> I'm like, what? So that's how that opened up uh, for me initially. And then the floodgate started opening up because I didn't believe, as I said, in past lives. And I thought maybe he was just reading my mind at the time or whatever. But when I started relaxing into what he told me, um, that's when it opened up. Yeah. Pretty spontaneous. Yeah. For someone who didn't believe in past lives or the afterlife or heaven or anything. Wow. So, so where did you go from there? Did you? So then, uh, so that was the end of 1977. That was November to December. I know exactly the dates because that's when the course was November to December, 1977. In early 1978, um, I started having memories of being a slave on a ship. Well, I didn't know it was a ship at first. So here's a good example of you and I talked before we started doing the interview about getting into process. So this is a good example of process, right? So the first time I have this experience, it wasn't a dream. It was a vision I had, I think, during my rest period after I meditated or something like that. I was in a relaxed state, whatever it was. I wasn't dreaming. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't wide awake and I wasn't meditating. So I was in kind of this in-between twilight state. You know, people sometimes we call yeah. it twilight state. Oh, you sure. know? And so I'm there and I see myself on a piece of wreckage, like the size of a door, maybe a little bit bigger than a door, because piece of wood floating on. And I look around and I can't see any land. So I think I'm on the ocean. So that's my first thought is I think I'm on a piece of wreckage in the ocean. And then I, but I, what I see my, my body, it's like, it's like I'm above my body looking down at this body that I knew was mine. And I have really, really dark black skin. Like, you know the phrase that people say, blue-black? It's so dark, it's like it has a sure. blue. That, that was my skin color. And I'm lying there on my stomach. I can see my back. I can't see my face. I see my, I'm just lying there alone in the middle of what I think is the ocean. That's my first experience. And, of course, I'm feeling very distressed. I would uh, think so. And, and then later, but process-wise, was interesting, later I start, I start um, tasting things. So I have a sensory experience. So that when I talk to people about past lives, I say, look for emotional. So emotional, I'm really distressed. Um, and and does, does it feel real? Yeah, it felt real. But do you start to have other sensory things? So it's not always this way, but this is things. These are like checklist stuff to look at to see if. And so I started tasting the salt and it was really salty water. So I, Again, I thought I was confirming that I was in the ocean somewhere, whatever. And then um, <clears throat> then I start seeing ships. And I start seeing ships in battles. And they're ramming each other. So now I know this is old, okay? Yeah. This is not the 1700s. It's not the 1800s. It's certainly not anything in the 1900s or the 20th century. This is ancient, okay? We're ramming ships. The ships are ramming each other. 
And um, and then I see myself chained down. I'm rowing, so I now I know I'm a slave, right? I'm chained down. I'm rowing in one of these ships. Um, and I think the next kind of iteration in the process was um, I started seeing this thing come down. This thing come down from one of the ships onto another ship. Um, and it, it was like a ramp coming down from one ship to the other. And then the soldiers would r- run across, or the sailors or whatever, the soldiers, they would run across and then it was this big battle, right? And so, and then sometimes they would throw tar on and fire and then the ship would blow up. And so that's what I think happened to my, <laughs> but, but the interesting data point from a processing standpoint, connecting, I call this connecting the dots, following the breadcrumbs and connecting the dots is what I call this. And so the jigsaw puzzle pieces. So, when the thing that came down had a hook on it. It had a metal hook on it, on the like a looked like a beak, like a like it was probably made of bronze or something, some metal thing come down. Oh. And it would hook on, and then the soldiers would run across. So I went and I looked this up. This is what I tell my students sometimes. I said, so follow the breadcrumbs, you know, look at the jigsaw puzzle pieces. Do they go together or not? And go and, and, and now we got the internet. So I, I looked it up. And it's this thing called a corvus. It's called a corvus. It's actually, I think it means raven or something like that in Latin, like the beak of a raven. Uh, like corvus, it comes down. And who did it? Who used those? The Roman Navy. And when did they use it? They only used it, I, I can't remember exactly. I think I put it in my book, but I looked it up. It's, they used it for only like a 50 to 75 year period in Roman naval history. Oh. Why? Why? Because the Carthaginians ruled the Mediterranean and had better maneuverability. They had better technology of their ships than the Romans. The Romans are way behind, but the Romans invented this ramp with a corvus on the end, the hook on, and to make, to equal the playing field because now the two ships become like they're on fighting on land. They're not having to maneuver, right? And so, um, so that oh, got them, goodness. that allowed them to catch up, the Romans to catch up with their maneuverability, their technology of the ships. Then they got rid of the Corvus. They didn't need that anymore. So I, so that's how I connected the dots to realize I was a Carthaginian slave on a Carthaginian ship because I saw those coming down onto our ships. Oh Crazy. my goodness. Right. So was this overnight? The, 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 this this is over years, years, For years. Years. Oh my it's, goodness, how this fascinating. Like, this is like 1978 to, I don't know, I didn't, so here's the other thing I tell my students that I'll tell your audience. Take notes, write things down. I didn't think I was going to ever talk about this stuff. I talked about this stuff with two or three, five friends. That was it. I didn't think I was going to start, I just started talking about this stuff in the last several years. So, be, to help my students overcome the fear of death, as you said. You know, right, to, yeah, yeah. But I didn't know I was going to be doing that when I was 20 something years old. So I, this, this went on. This one series that I just gave you all the snippets of happened probably over 10 years. Oh, fascinating. And, and it probably you had opened this door because you were doing so much meditating. You were getting really deep into your psychological kind of. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know you could baggage. open that door. We'll call it call it baggage. <laughs> I guess. I was unloading lots of baggage. I guess I you unloading, were. Unloading lots of baggage. Yeah. Was this mixed in with other kinds of memories of other times? Say like sometimes you would have this, you would you would access yes. 
this this having been this slave, and then other times you would access this in a different memory of a different right. life. Yeah, I call that so the each so I have this analogy. I said it's like each lifetime is like a hundred million piece jigsaw puzzle. I mean oh. just, I just pick a big number. The hundred million is not I mean you could say a hundred billion, whatever. It's just yeah, a big like big a, number. Big number. And and you start getting pieces and oh look, three pieces go together, they fit together over here. Oh look, ten pieces fit together over here. Oh wow, look, you got twenty pieces fit together over here. And then they may be the same puzzle. But then you start what I started happening was that I started getting different pieces from different puzzles. Around oh my goodness. so in 1978, when this started happening after the 77 1977 experience, 1978 to 79, I I started. I'll just give you a list. I said that I had the Carthaginian slave one. I had one where I was a World War II fighter pilot. Uh, this this is all within about six months. Within about six months, this all just popped in, like all these different puzzles. Right? I I, I knew was I was a king of Prussia. A king. I didn't know where Prussia was. I didn't think I was going to talk about it. I didn't even look it up then. I just thought, oh, King of Prussia, big deal. And then the King of Prussia thing, I didn't have another, I call data point or another jigsaw puzzle piece in that one, other than the knowingness of a King of Prussia for another 15 years until something else popped in on that. And then I didn't know which one until recently around 2014. I figured it out. And I connected the dots. So that's that's that spans what forty years or something or whatever it is. Or, My you know, goodness, you know, you know, thirty years, or whatever. <laughs> but the other another one that popped in in nineteen seventy eight. So this was spring of. We're, we're going back now a few years, okay? Yeah, I'm all over the place, but because you get these different puzzle pieces, yeah, like yeah. It, right? So I, I I I lost track here, but you know maybe I got four or five going on at the same time, different puzzles going on. At the same time, um, it, it was this one popped in. This is an interesting one from a process standpoint, because I'll, I'll show you how the process, this one, uh, took uh, from 1978 spring to 2010. Yeah, so this is going to, what I'm going to tell you spans 1978 to 2010. So in 1978, I was, again, lying down resting after I meditated and I was with at some friend's house uh, outside of Chicago and their parents' living room floor. We had just meditated. There's six or seven of us or whatever there. And um, I'm lying there resting. And you know how in, you, you know how your, your mind's eye can open up and you kind of like the TV screen goes on inside. You know, you have a TV. It's like I'm watching stuff. It's like in a dream for those people who don't know what I'm talking about. I'm, mo most people have had dreams where you can see stuff in your dream. So this was not a dream because I'm just lying down half awake or I'm awake, but, but relaxed after my meditating. Okay. <clears throat> but it's, it's the same phenomenon. So now I see myself, I walk into a stone room, stone floor, stone wall, ceiling, everything, big, huge stone blocks. And I walk to the center of the room and there's nobody in the room except myself. And there's and the furniture is all pushed to the walls except there's one piece of furniture in the middle of the room and it's a it's a big full-length mirror so i walk up to the mirror and it's the first and only time that i've ever seen my face in a in, in an experience before and i walked up i see them in the mirror and i go up and i see myself and i fill up the mirror so i know i'm big take take note of that 
data point. So I know I'm big, but I don't know how big yet. Okay. I know I'm big. I fill up the mirror. I have long red hair. Take note of that. Red hair, red hair, red beard. <clears throat> I have a, a cha- full length chain mail on with a white tunic and a cross. So I knew as a crusader and I get this sure. energy rush. I get this knowingness that it's me. But what I had was process wise, interestingly, because as I said, I have a science background. You know, I, I didn't believe in past lives and stuff, right? This has just started happening to me six months before this experience. You know, I, I, I'm like, no, and I, I had doubt. <laughs> I had doubt. And then immediately after I have the doubt experience, this rush of energy goes from like my feet up through my body, shoots out my head with knowingness. So I have, I see a vision. I see this, my, I see myself. I know it's me. So I have knowingness, doubt, knowingness. And with this energy just shoots through me like, like a fire hose with the knowingness. And so I, then I relaxed because I'm like, oh, I relaxed and I, and the floodgates opened up. Now, so from 1978 to 2010, I'll just list a bunch of stuff. So I won't, you know, because I don't need, I, I didn't take notes. So I didn't keep a journal. <laughs> I don't know exactly when this happened. But it, over that period of time, various things happened. Like uh, I started seeing myself in battles in the Crusades. And I Were was you always a man. You're always a man. No, no. We're going to come back to the, we'll come back to the women oh. one in a sec. So, so, so. I was always at the phalanx. I was at the always at the at the spearhead tip of the of the thousands of troops. That's one data point, right? Always okay. there. And I have all these memories, and it's kind of gory, and it's kind of I get smell of the battlefields. Battlefields people should never want to go to war. I mean this seriously. It doesn't. Yes, disgusting. Or the past doesn't matter when. War is uglier than people can imagine. imagine. That's why, that's that's why you have so many PTSD soldiers coming back. It's just that PTSD has existed forever in, in survivors of, of these battles. Anyway, so I have all these memories of the smells and the tastes and all this stuff and the sand of the desert in my teeth as I'm in the battles. And so that's that's one data point. Uh, eating horses when we're starving is another data point. Um, but I started remembering how big I I remember just out of nowhere after 10 or 15 years. Uh, I, I started going, I'm six foot five, 230 pounds. Where did that come from? Six foot five, 230 pounds. I knew how big I was out of, I don't know where it's out of my memory. Now I know where it is. But at the time I was like in the 1980s, I'm like, where does that come from? And then, and then, uh, 2010, I'm meditating in a room with my daughter. Um, we're meditating and she told me, she filled in the blanks of this experience when I was writing my book six months ago because um, I'd forgotten pieces of it because I was in the, immersed in this experience. She said we meditated together and then we were lying down resting and I was on the floor resting and she's lying down on the couch or something and I'm on the floor lying down resting. And she said, Daddy, I looked down at you and you started yelling Saracens, Saracens. And, then, oh. and and you were going like this with your fit. You had two hands on something, oh. like, and you were and 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 then I asked you afterwards, and you and you didn't remember, but and I told you what happened, and, and you said, "Oh, I was in battle," and Sar- so we we didn't know what Saracens was. We looked it up, and so I've learned recently. I mean, recently in 2010, that the word Saracens is the old term for Muslims. Muslims right. is 
term since 1600s. Right, but right. That, for a thousand years before that, they were called Saracens. And so yeah. I, I was in the Third Crusades yeah. in the 1100s. Of course, of course. And, it was, and there was only one person who was six foot, foot five who had reddish hair who was leading battles in the Third Crusades. Look at that. You found out someone that you actually were. Wow. <laughs> Look at you. And and get this. Here's another data point of that one. <laughs> is that he was a musician and wrote music. I was a music. I'm a, I've, I've been a musician uh, this lifetime in my youth. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've had lifetimes where I was a musician and wrote music. Other times I was a musician and didn't write music, but I've always had this music personality trait, even though I'm a battlefield commander or a leader of this or a slave or whatever. There there are traits that thread. carry over. Yeah. The thread. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? That's so interesting. And so... And so but what do you know what made this get started? What what drew what started it and started to draw it out of you? Do you know? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I just know that it started happening. I really don't. I, I just I I I, uh, I think I, I'll answer it this way. I think that there's two things that help me open up more maybe then other people and now I'm not the only one. There's lots of people who have past life memories, but I think there's two key factors. One is fear of death. I don't have a fear of death. I don't want to die, but I don't have a fear of how I'm going to die because I have memories of how I've died in horrific ways. And I know that I will survive that experience, you know, the experience of death. So mm -hmm. that aspect of fear, it doesn't exist in me. Okay. Um, and the other is embarrassment. I mean, and I mean this seriously. I mean, I, I don't care what people think. I don't care if people think I'm crazy for telling these stories now. I mean, it's like, it's like whatever they think they think. I don't have control over, as you know, you know, we don't have control over what other people think of us. And so I really have embraced that, I think, more deeply, um, this lifetime than in any of my previous lifetimes. And I think that's one of the, I think that's a key reason. Yes. So are you teaching? Do people say, hey, that's cool. I want to learn how to do that. And are you teaching people how to recover uh, past past no, memories? No, I don't teach people. I mean, people can go to past life regressionists. I don't do that. Um, but, you know, I teach people how to meditate, as you've said already. And and, it's, and, and, and that can open people up. I, I can't promise that it will. But is it the is it the, a key accelerator? I think so. You know, to open ourselves up more to who we, to the vastness of who we are. In other words, not just our little, what I call my, uh, our mind and everybody, we have an eight inch little bucket part of ourselves. Uh, you know, that's the focusing, the controlling, the directing part of our mind. Uh, you know, the car, the driving the car down the street part of our mind. And, but we have our vastness of our mind that people aren't open up to. That's what I teach people how to open up to. So is that going to increase the probability? Yes, of opening up to past lives. Yeah, so I I'm a probability guy. So I, I try to teach stuff that will increase their likelihood as much as possible. Um, they can go to somebody. There's some good past life regression people out there, and there's some you know the, the, 
I don't do that. But yeah. And and how many lives? I, I mean, you you say in your book that you've gone back to as six thousand years yeah, with right. with memories. Yeah. And and how many lives have you figured out? You've discovered fragments of fragments of uh, a couple of dozen, twenty four, twenty five lifetimes. In fact, I, wow. just, I just got another one of since I wrote the book. I got another one. I don't know in may or something like that uh the book came out in april so i think in may or something like that i got this another piece of a another native um another native uh indigenous person here in north what we call now called north america um but ancient but older so so one i talk about in the book is from the 1800s of being a lakota um leader and shaman but um, the one I had, I recently got, got uh, um, visions of and, and memories of in, in May of this year was from about, I'm guessing, six or 8,000 years ago in Southwest, what we call Southwest. In fact, you know, where Sam is, somewhere over near Arizona, New Mexico-ish area, something like that, what we call that area now. Sam is my wonderful engineer. They were talking before we did this program. Yeah, yeah. People may, may not be able to see Sam, but yeah, what? he's in the Arizona. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and and do you find connections among these lives? Because I know you put them in order in the book. They didn't come to you in order at all. But no. Do you do you see growth from them from yeah. one to another to another? And do you see connections? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, in the book, I, I, I had to organize it somehow, you know, because I couldn't, I couldn't just do it the way it, I experienced it because I've been all yeah. over craziness, you know, like just this and this and this and this puzzle and that piece. So I, I did put them in what we historically know as chronological order starting 6,000 years ago to, you know, you know, 19, <clears throat> 1943, I think I died in my last lifetime right before this one. So, so, but yes, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Connections and learnings and growth and self-development learnings from looking within myself, because I've long been a person to, I mean, that's part of my personality um, is to learn from my mistakes and learn from my Good, good experience and bad experiences, both, you know, and neutral experiences, all experiences is to, is to learn. And so, you know, I, I have a strategic personality trait, an ability to be strategic and tactical on a playing field, a battlefield, or a business field. So I've chosen to exercise that in the business arena this lifetime instead of the battlefield. Right. <laughs> you know, so, um, but I, and I've been a political leader, et cetera, et cetera. So, but, and that involves strategy and tactic, tactical, you know, personality traits and skills and so forth. So how I've ex- expressed these has been different in different lifetimes. That's the point. And even the music point that I mentioned, you know, it's been expressed differently in different lifetimes. In one of my lifetimes in the 1700s, I'm known to have written, I think it was like 121, uh, um, arias and stuff, you know, I mean, just, and I was a, I was a flautist. I was a, 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 a you know, I, I gave flute concerts, solo, you know, solo flute concerts in my palace when I was the king of Prussia and so forth. And I've known 
known for my uh, musical ability. In fact, the flute that I had handmade, obviously handmade, but uh, back then in the 1700s, my original flute still exists in in Germany. Yeah, it's it's, it's still owned by one of the families there has it. Yeah, and they actually, I, I, I saw this online, that they actually brought the flute out. It's obviously, it's being very, very carefully cared for. Uh, they p- brought it out and it was played for the first time in like 200 something years at a, uh, a Prussian... Wow. A Prussian festival, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> it's kind of kind of gives gives you shivers in a way, doesn't it? No, right? Yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing here's a, one about that lifetime in Prussia. So, as I said in 2014, I figured out, kind of triangulated which king of Prussia it was Frederick II, and um, but uh, that particular king of Prussia was into what, to this point of what you were talking about, threads and so forth, and what have we learned and what carries forward from lifetime to lifetime. He was into Greek philosophy, and he was, and he was, and he, and he, and he modeled his life after, well, before I say this, before, before that in 1999, I had this knowingness that I was Marcus Aurelius. Now, out of the 25 lifetimes, of these lifetimes are no-name people, just unknown people, right? You'd expect a lot of them to be, yeah. Yeah, but there's like four or five, there's four of them, I think, or five of them, something like that, who are are known characters. He's one of them. So when I was researching something about Marcus Aurelius, and if you read my purple book, which is why, that's why I called it Marcus Aurelius Updated, my the, the, the 67 essays that I've written in this lifetime, they, they, a lot of those ideas, you look at those ideas and you compare them to Marcus Aurelius' ideas. And these, and a lot of the concepts are similar or I've expanded on them. So this answers your question about how have we grown over the thousands of years. So I've, ex- I've taken some of the seeds and then I've expanded on some of those. You've looked through that lens. If you read my purple book, the Marcus Aurelius updated book through that lens now, and if you've, if any of your audience have studied any Marcus Aurelius' stuff, You'll see, they'll see parallels. Anyway, when I was looking up some Marcus Aurelius stuff, I have this book here. It's like inch and a half thick biography. And in the back of this book, in one of the last chapters, is a chapter on people who revered Marcus Aurelius through history. And 1600 years after Marcus Aurelius died, there's this guy. And at this point, I don't know which king of Prussia I am. Okay. And I read this and it says, a king of Prussia, Frederick II, modeled his life after Marcus Aurelius. And I said, well, what? Wait a minute. Getting chills. And so I, and I look up this guy, Marcus, I mean, Frederick II, a king of Prussia, and um, turns out he was into Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy. He, he, he renamed one of his palaces Remusburg. The, the, the actual name of the palace was Rheinsburg. He renamed it Remusburg. And why did he rename it Remusburg? Because Remus, Romulus and Remus, are the mythical, oh. legendary, found, you know, they had this fraternal fratricide. They fought and, and Romulus right. killed, killed Remus, right? And that's why right. Rome is named after Romulus. Remus died. So it's like Frederick the Great's shout out to the, oh. the, the, killed, the killed brother, He's going to name 
his palace after that one, Remusburg. And it was in the and it was a small group of his friends, eleven friends. That's what they called it. And they had and they had Roman nicknames, and they just they got together and they discussed Greek and Roman philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So and plus, I have a student today from Australia, one of my meditation students from Australia, just got back. He went a month ago to Germany for Europe, and he went and he went to Frederick the Great, Frederick the Second's palace. And he told me that in nowhere in any of the books that I've read or online researched did they tell me what he told me that he saw there. There's not just one statue of Marcus Aurelius at Frederick's palace. He has many, many statues of Marcus Aurelius throughout the grounds and in the palace. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Um, So... All I could say is uh, uh, Marcus and then uh, uh, the Kaiser or whatever his name was. And, and you. And these things do carry on. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. is quite amazing. Interestingly, I, I, I found out fairly recently that um, one of Frederick the Great's, um, well, one of the things he's known for is being a very pragmatic, practical. So this is a trait, personality trait, back to the threads that you talked about earlier. This is a personality trait that's run through all my lifetimes. I'm very pragmatic, very practical. Yeah. uh, To to the point of, you know, being somewhat a utilitarian at, at certain points. And one of the things that he's known for is drilling his troops. And because Prussia in the mid-1700s, became the powerhouse um, nation in Europe, um, defeating England, Russia, Austria, uh, the French, etc., etc. And um, one of the main reasons was Frederick drilled his troops more than any of the other countries. So maneuvering your troops during a battle back in the 18th century is really an important thing. So the, you got to get the troops to do it because in the middle of the battle, you got cannonballs exploding all over the place. A lot of them lose focus. <laughs> Talk about the ability to be able to focus in your waking state activity after you meditate, right? Really an important trait, right? In battle. <laughs> I would, I would right? think so. Yes. Think so. You've got things exploding around. And so all the training that the French and the Russians and the Germans and the Austrians uh, and the English, you know, put their troops, they would all go out the window. They weren't really trained enough to withstand those types of things. So Frederick would recreate things in sort of the, so that this is, you know, this is, and this is what a lot of coaches do now in sports. They, they kind of recreate situations where, um, you can, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna run into this problem. Let's create the problem now and practice through it. Right. Yes, of course. So not not that Frederick would blow cannonballs up around people, but but he drilled them really really well. That's one thing that he's known for, and what one of the reasons why the historians think that he defeated all these other countries' armies so easily. The other thing was laziness. He was not lazy. Like what would happen after a battle? Even his own troops would sometimes think that they lost the battle, 
And he would, and, and so, and, they, and then the, the, the winning team, country's team would, or troops would leave the field, the battlefield. And, and Frederick would go, well, wait, no, no, we haven't lost till we've lost. So now that they're all, you know, oh, they're all tending to their wounded and they're cooking their meals and all that, we'll circle around and we wipe them out. And so we do that frequently. It's like, you know, to yeah, me, dirty pool a little bit. Well, I think it's like, it's just, to me, it's like smart. It's like, okay, the battle has not been lost until it's lost. Okay. Now, and then the other thing is, um, it was all muskets, right? So you have this thing called a ramrod. You have to push the, you know, the, the ball yeah. there with the wad and all this stuff. Okay. Well, what are all ramrods made of up until Frederick changed them? Wood. They're made of wood. And and why were they made of wood? Because it's easy to make. And your your uncle, who's a carpenter, who's not even a soldier, can make a ramrod for you and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So they're easy and quick to make. What happens to wood in battle? Especially when they're... Oh, they catch fire. It catches fire. Catches fire or it breaks. First, it's going it's to break because the soldiers are nervous and they're like, I got to get this because this guy's shooting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they ram it in and they break it. And then what what do they got now? They don't have a rifle anymore. If they're lucky, they had a bayonet. And now they have a big long, they have a big long spear. That's it, right? And right. so, so what did Frederick? What's Frederick known to have done? Create metal ramrods. Oh, pretty basic, yeah. Basic, basic. So they're straight. They're not going to warp, and they're not going to break. So you know, so pretty so, smart guy. He was pretty smart. So then, so then, one of his one of his uh, senior officers came to the came to the United States. Ben Franklin met him, and one of Frederick's senior officers. This was when Frederick was, <clears throat> you know, in his uh, late sixties, early seventies. So now he's kind of in the end of his life. He's not doing the whole battlefield thing. He's more administratively managing the country because the country is now, you know, at, at the top of the uh, heap in Europe. So one of his senior officers meets Ben Franklin and goes to the United States and is hired by the Continental Army to train George Washington's troops. Wow. So it all comes together here. Look at that. Yeah. So George Washington's troops were such a motley, undisciplined group that uh, Frederick's senior officer came and said, well, first of all, you know what? The latrines should not be next to the kitchens. All right. So we're going to move the latrines. All of a sudden, people were not getting so sick so so often. And then, and then he dreamed. Oh, Kelvin, we are we are out of time, and I want to go and talk with you about this for days. This is fascinating. Yeah, this is. What 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 do you want people to remember from this? Because this is so fascinating. The main thing is. Um, Looking at oneself and what does this stuff tell me about myself? That's the way, that's what I want people to remember. So you start remembering stuff. What does it tell you about yourself? And so this has increased my knowledge about myself. And especially the Carthaginian slave experience has allowed me to, 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 to push through some very, very difficult times in this 20th century, 21st century lifetime as Kelvin Chin, when I've gotten laid off five times. So be, why? Because I knew my mind was so powerful 
my mind willed myself to stay alive when I was on that wreckage in the Mediterranean 2,300 years ago. That's what I want people to remember, is how do these things teach ourselves? How do these experiences, what can they teach ourselves about ourselves and about the strengths and the weaknesses that we may need to work on in ourselves to make ourselves stronger, live a more content, more inwardly peaceful life as we continue through eternity. Wow, that's beautifully said. What can we learn from what we see in these experiences, what we feel in these experiences to help us grow and learn and be stronger in the in the lifetime we're living now? Beautifully said. Wow. We're going to have to do this again because you are such a great storyteller. I, I get so absorbed in in what we were saying. I just don't, I lost totally lost all track of time. I could have listened to you all day, but as I recall, you're, you've always been like that. Whatever we're talking about, you could just talk for days. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it. it they say that it's been a trait that I've had for many thousands of years. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Oh, we have to, a lot of practice, a lot of practice. <laughs> we have to do this again. Oh, well, meanwhile, everybody, this has been Secret Reality with Roberta Grimes. Big hub, by the way, my dear. It's so good to see you. See you. This has been Secret Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm so happy you could be with us today and enjoy this. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began. You never will end. And when you really get what that means and all its implications, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, and this is actually a great juxtaposition, our guest will be Peter Wright. And he'll have, he'll have been here, actually, this is the 17th time. Peter is such a frequent guest because he's a great favorite with Secret Reality listeners. He is, as you know, he's a past life regression therapist. And his work in this field is able to address an astounding, a variable, huge range of mental and psychological problems. Peter, I've actually worked with him. He does a, an amazing job in helping people find and address issues, some of them very long standing in their lives. And next week, he's, we're going to be looking with Peter at some of the many kinds of problems that past life regression therapy has addressed in, in the lives of the people he's helped. And he's going to show us in in his files what some of the things that have really made a difference in those people's lives. Of course, he's going to mask the identities of the people that he's helped, but it really makes a huge, a huge, he can address in one session problems people have had for, for sometimes decades that talk therapy has not addressed at all. So be with us next week. You're going to love Peter Wright. If you've not, if you've not, and you're going to get to see him and you've never, maybe you've never seen him before. You'll get to see him next week. So please be with us. And this week, our guest has been Kelvin Chin. I've known Kelvin for years and I've always found him to be so delightful and so entertaining, but also he is rock solid. He's very well educated. And this is, this is all real. What he's talking to about to us about is real. I can vouch for him personally. And his latest book is called After the Afterlife. And as you see, he's also very into what we can learn from our own past lives. He has recovered memories of extensive past life experiences that go back for 6,000 years. I didn't know this about him, but I think we've got to have him back. I want to talk more about this whole thing and, and what he's been through and what he's learned from it. Um 
Today we've really, I, I talked, there were areas I didn't want him to touch on and he didn't. He was a very good sport about it all. And I, I'd like to have him back and delve a bit more into all of this. And, uh, I frankly, I found, even though I didn't get to read much of his book because of the fact that I'd just broken my shoulder, um, we'll have him back again. I'll have read the book and we'll talk about all of this a bit more. <laughs> I have, I'll be really frank with you. Reality is, is not just a lot more complex and amazing than we've been ever imagining. It's a lot more complex and amazing than we even can imagine. So we're going to just, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking with Kelvin again, but isn't he fun and isn't he entertaining? He's always like that. And now, of course, it's also time to once again mention that Seek Reality Online is your one-stop resource for all things afterlife. Just go to seekreality.com and start to learn for yourself that your own reality truly is eternal. Learn the ultimate truth from Craig Hogan, who is your worldwide expert on all things afterlife. And teachingsbyjesus.com is your single resource for all the beautiful divine truths that are brought to us in perfect love by the greatest teacher, Master Jesus, the eternally risen Christ. Now it really is Jesus's turn. We're just getting that website going. We're still getting direction. But as Christianity, the religion that was created by the Roman Emperor Constantine and not by Jesus, not at all. But as that religion finally dies, the genuine teachings of Jesus can finally come alive. Teachingsbyjesus.com is the Lord's own entirely religion-free website. It's made by Jesus in perfect love for you. My own nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For young children, there's the fun of meeting Jesus, and you can order all these books through bookstores or on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. And most adult books are also available as audiobooks, except the last one. You have to do that one, too. If you want to talk about anything at all, just contact me through the green contact lock on RobertaGrimes.com. I answer every email. But I can only answer your email if you give me your correct email address. And sometimes they bounce because people haven't done that. They've left something out. So that makes me sad, especially if I spend a lot of time on a good email to back to you. So please be sure to give me your correct address. All of the more than 500 past episodes of Seek Reality Audio are available on, on just about everywhere that you can find past episodes of audio podcasts and now, you know, if you have the Seek Reality app, you can always get the new audio episodes. And they're now our video episodes. Every week we add a new one. You can find them on Roku or on Fire Stick. And meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality. There's just one, even though they try to tell you it's Material, it's not material at all. None of it is. This is just all a big illusion. Please know that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you, most of all in this entire universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.